Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussion Podcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $3 a month or $25 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for the chance to be with you today. Today I want to talk about Lesson 24 in the manual that we're using right now, which is the Church History and Doctrine and Covenants Manual. I'll be working out of the teacher's uh, copy, and you can easily find that on LDS.org. And I want to preface the lesson with a few ideas about faith crisis and, uh, and why this lesson's on my mind. First, let me say the word faith crisis, that term, that phrase, that cliche. I struggle with it now because, and people used to do this, like in the beginning of this podcast, I'm halfway through serving as a bishop and and my shelf is is crashing and I'm trying to find ways to reconcile this. So I start this podcast as an effort to really give myself kind of a voice to work these things out out loud and to let people like you know that you're not alone. Because that's what's really sucked for me was I was alone. And so at one point, your, your worldview, your framework, it, it changes, it, it turns, it twists just enough that you now realize that your identity is very different from the identity of your tribe, which is Mormonism. And so you show up at church on Sunday and these people are saying things, teaching things, holding ground that you no longer can say, teach, or hold. And as you look around, you're the only person in the room who feels this way. You're the only person in the room who's thinking these thoughts. And so nothing fits. Like you're like, I don't fit here anymore. And I know this is the Lord's church. This is the true church. And for some reason, the very core of who I am no longer fits with this. And because there's nobody there saying like, this is normal, because everybody there is telling you that to go through this process is somehow bad or negative. Like nobody's showing you like this is okay and this leads somewhere. And so we call it a faith crisis. Like that feels like the right word to us. That feels like the right term. And it's because we're alone. And it's because nobody else is validating this. And everybody is putting language to the idea that something bad has just happened. People who fall away, people who doubt, people who have real questions and now don't know if they can believe these things anymore. Like there's something wrong with them. They're broken in some way. And even in our best moments, Elder Uchtdorf, when he he says that uh, hope is a good place to start, And my argument back would be maybe hope's a good place to end. Maybe certitude is gone once you've gone through this process. And so I sat there as a, as a 31, 32 year old, just knowing like my entire world is just now disintegrated. And it feels like a crisis. 
and it, and again, it feels like a crisis because nobody's helping you or showing you or talking to you or validating to you that you can put this back together. But now that I'm, I'm, you know, seven, eight years past that, right? I'm, I'm plenty of time past that, six years past that. And a lot has happened in these six years. I've taken every single issue I can think of in Mormonism and just, just got my tools out and just took it apart, examined each piece, looked at, at the value of each piece, the truth of each piece, and then put it back together. Some pieces got left off to the side. Some pieces uh, I brought in from somewhere else. And I've put this thing back together in a way that that is for me. It's my Mormonism. And I'm no longer in crisis. Like there's not a drop of me that is is in crisis over whether the church is true or not. Like I'm not I'm not debating that in my head anymore. Like I've I've got my own solid ground I'm holding. I'm certainly open to additional truth. I'm certainly continuing to read and study and think about things. But my mind is no longer preoccupied with trying to find the truth of this. And it hasn't been for a long time. And people message me and they call me all the time. Bill, I'm hurting. Bill, my shelf came down a month ago. Bill, my wife and I were were such at odds on this. How do I put this back together? And one of the things I really see in others that I can look back and saw in myself was this need to fix it. Like if I just read one more book, if I just say one more prayer, if I just fast one more time, God's going to come in and he's going to show me how these pieces go back together. And and so there's this need to get to the bottom of it, to figure out the truth of this thing. And in and, and your mind, right, the fact that it's not true is kind of an unacceptable conclusion so you're really only looking for things that put it back together. And as you begin to delve into po- apologetics and visit Fair Mormon's site and, and begin to have conversations with people or explore uh, articles in dialogue or Sunstone or, or find a, a person in your stake who's also on the same journey and have conversations about how, like, how do you make this work? And then you realize like the more you read, the more you talk, the more you think about these issues, the less and less they fit which only throws you further into crisis because you know the church is true and you know somehow these people are all holding it together and you're not able to. But again, fast forward, once you just learn to accept this doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. This doesn't go together. This doesn't work out where all the pieces have their place in this fit. It just doesn't. And again, I'm not speaking to the truth claims of the church in this moment. I'm just saying, like, Mormonism is a mess. Bushman's right, the dominant narrative isn't true. Patrick Mason's right, we loaded the truth cart so full, and all the pineapples are rotting and falling off at this point. Grant Hardy's right, a non-literal belief in the Book of Mormon is a saving faith. And so once you just take a step back, take a step back and just look at the whole landscape, and say, like, like none of this fits, and I don't need to fight for it to fit anymore. Like, I'm going to build this my way. And so you create your own spiritual life, and you create your own Mormonism. And whether you stay or whether you leave, like, that journey needs to be honored and respected and realize that it was come to honestly. So this week, I was looking at chapter 24 out of the Church History Manual. And as I was looking at that, I was, and the reason I'm looking at that is I've got a really good friend who is a gospel doctrine teacher in the church. And, and there's him and I and, and another, uh, another buddy. 
and we are just really good. We're just close and we, we spend time together and really the center of our relationship is that we've all been through this. We've all been through this transition of faith and we all respect each other as having put a lot of time and energy into understanding Mormonism inside and out. And we all, we all respect kind of how we've come to that space. And so when we get together, that's what we talk about is Mormonism. And we talk about faith development and we talk about the, the messiness of this and what it means to go through these transitions and reach different stages and how we think and process this, this information, this material. And so he teaches next week, lesson 24. And, and, uh, actually, I'm sorry, in two weeks. And then next week, we've got it in our own ward. And, and so I'm thinking about this lesson. Lesson 24. Be not deceived, but continue in steadfastness. And I, I knew some time ago, getting into this lesson, that it was going to be problematic because I knew one of the stories it talked about was Thomas Marsh. So I opened up the, the page on my, on my iPad and read over lesson 24. And I have to say, like, I, like, I was deeply offended by chapter 24. The, the falsity of chapter 24 stands out so severely that it, that it's, it's absolutely like butting heads with the ground that I'm holding, the space that I'm holding. And so I want to talk to you today about chapter 24. Chapter 24 seems to be a beautiful case study of the church's mechanisms that are in place where it ne- for anybody who leaves the church or steps away from the church, the institution and its mechanisms need to paint these people a certain way. And, and one of the first things they need to paint him as is having left over petty reasons. These people gave up their birthright for a bowl of porridge, right? And so as I'm reading 24, be not deceived, but continue in steadfastness. The purpose to help class members understand how they can avoid deception and apostasy. So the lesson starts out. It, it wants the teacher to put up on the board a pint of cream. Underneath that, a misspelled name. Underneath that, no available seating at the Kirtland Temple dedication. Now you know where they're going, right? You can see the pint of cream is Thomas Marsh. You can see a misspelled name is Simon's Rider. And I don't know who the heck left the church over not having a seat at the Kirtland Temple dedication, but that just bewilders me that that is even in there. So you ask the class, like, what do these have in common, kids? What do they have in common? And, and the old high priest in the back raises his hand, right? The answer that the manual says that you are supposed to arrive at is that these phrases all have something in common. They are reasons, they are all reasons given by early church members for their apostasy from the church. These are all reasons given by the very person who left as their reason for leaving the church. And the moment I saw that phrase, another quote came to mind. Elder Ballard, in his talk to the CES teachers, said this. He said, in teaching your students and in responding to their questions, let me warn you not to pass along faith-promoting or unsubstantiated rumors or outdated understandings and explanations of our doctrines, 
our doctrine and practices from the past. Let me read that again. Let it, sorry, let me start from the beginning. In teaching your students and in responding to their questions, let me warn you not to pass along faith-promoting or unsubstantiated rumors or outdated understandings and explanations for our doctrine and practices from the past. We need to stop telling a false narrative. And it's not a narrative that all these teachers just came up with on their own. It's the narrative that the institution taught them. Elder Ballard also says our curriculum at that time, though well-meaning, did not prepare our students for today. Our curriculum didn't prepare people because it told an oversimplified, deeply inaccurate story. And so here we are, and we've got Lesson 24, and we've got it on the board that there's a pint of cream, a misspelled name, and no available seat in the Kirtland Temple. Look at the pettiness of those reasons. Look at them. It's atrocious. It's so false. These, first off, it's, it's not accurate. And I want to stop short of saying dishonest, but it is certainly not accurate that Thomas Marsh ever on the public record said I left over a pint of cream. It is not accurate. And again, I hesitate to say it is, is dishonest, but it is not accurate that Simon's writer is ever on the record saying he left over a misspelled name. And I don't, I don't even know who doesn't have available seating of the Kirtland Temple? And so I don't know the history behind that one, but I know the writer story and I know the Marsh story. And so the, the lesson is how to avoid individual apostasy. Number one, anybody who leaves, there's such a petty reason why you left. And so now we dive into some of the reasons. The first point the teacher is supposed to make is that we should recognize the deceptions of Satan can lead us into apostasy. During the early years of the church, some members were deceived by Satan and led into apostasy or rebellion against God. As members of the church today, we must be faithful and watchful so we are not deceived. Such such tribal language, such in-group, out-group dynamics going on here. And so now it lists the reasons why people lose their faith. One, not recognizing the prophet as the source of revelation for the church. And they go on to talk about being deceived by false prophets. And Hiram Page and and his seer stone, but of course they don't get into the seer stone because we don't want to tie that back to Joseph and his treasure digging. But we get a little bit of Hiram Page having his false revelations. And so it's the idea that we we as Latter-day Saints got to be careful that we don't end up following some false prophet. Some other person who's claiming to know better, right? And, and the question would be like, is this a serious issue today? And I guess it could be argued it is with Denver Snuffer. That there are lots of members of the church who are looking for revelation. They're looking for further light and knowledge. They're not seeing it in the top 15. And, but they know the church is true. They know the Book of Mormon's real and they know that priesthood and keys were restored. So they had, so they're looking for them. And so the question comes in, like, like, is the false prophet the cause of their apostasy and they're following him? Or is it a symptom of the fact that, that they are looking for the expectation that the institution set for them of what a prophet is and what prophets can do? In other words, if the church says, these 15 men are like Moses, Noah, and Abraham, and 
and you feel like the church has set a certain standard of what that looks like, like this is what Moses, Noah, and Abraham are, this is what they did, this is what they can do, and this is who our prophets today are. And then as you live your life and watch with your eyes, and if you personally don't feel like those top 15 are living up to the standard that the church, the very church set for Moses, Noah, and Abraham, then you're, you're, be, you're going to begin to like look at this differently and say, wait a minute, I have an expectation. It's not being met. I wonder if it's met somewhere else. And so while I'm not going to stick up for Denver Snuffer, and I'm certainly not a fan of leaving this church to find some other prophet, like I'm beyond that, that wrestle. That's not even within me. But I would say that following after a false prophet is generally not the cause. Rather, it's a symptom of something else going on. And that something else going on are unmet expectations. The next thing it lists is pride. Some members are deceived because of their pride. It talks about the Thomas Marsh case. Now, we have to stop here and say, the Thomas Marsh story of milk and strippings, many historians feel that this story is a fable. It's not true. To use it as the reason why someone left the church is petty and silly and accurate. And, and, by, and if you know it's inaccurate, it now becomes unethical to share it. You're bearing false witness. And we've been bearing false witness of Thomas Marsh, and we'll get to in a moment, Simon's writer, for some time. It needs to stop. The other thing we don't like to tell people is that Sister Harris is having the disagreement with Sister Marsh. It's Lucinda Harris plural, secret, wife of Joseph Smith. If Thomas Marsh and his wife realize like this disagreement's not working out, they, Sister Marsh has this disagreement with Lucinda Harris, and things aren't going her way. Again, the, the recounting of this story is way late, and we, we don't know that this story happened, and we don't know that this story happened the way it was said. In fact, we almost certainly know it didn't happen this way, Joseph Smith lives with the Harris family, Lucinda and her husband, George. Somewhere around this time, and, and I'm being vague here because we don't know, but our best guesses from the scholars is somewhere between 1838 and 1840, she becomes a relation, an intimate relationship with Joseph, the prophet Joseph Smith. And so if you can picture Joseph's having this relationship with Lucinda Harris, it's secret, nobody knows, it involves intimacy, and Lucinda and Thomas Marsh and his wife have this disagreement, and so the Marshes appeal to the First Presidency, which is what they do. If this story happened the way it's reported, they appeal to the First Presidency. Now, Joseph has this secret wife who's in this disagreement. He doesn't want her name out there. He doesn't want the conversation started, and he certainly doesn't want her upset or she's going to start spilling the beans. Is there any chance in the world that the First Presidency sides with the Marshes? And the answer is no. So number one, the Marshes didn't leave over milk and strippings. Number two, we tell this story in a way as to make Brother Marsh look the worst, look, look in the, in the light the worst possible way. We, we paint him in the worst light possible. We make it sound like Thomas Marsh leaves over this such petty reasons. Shame on Thomas. And the reality is we've chosen to tell this story in a deeply inaccurate, deeply oversimplified, 
deeply over and underreaching at various parts. And we fail to tell people the parts of the story that are not faith-promoting, even though they are crucial details to the story. So people leave over pride. But we never have the conversation, right? Like, maybe it's not pride. Maybe it's humility that leads people out. Maybe these people tried with all their heart, mind, and soul. And their heart was broken over the process of trying to find answers to make this work again. Like, does everybody who leave... Who leaves? Do they leave over pride? Is that even a majority of people that leave over pride? Or do they leave because nothing in this religion adds up? And so they make a decision like, I can't, I, I don't fit here. I've tried. I have fasted. I have prayed. I have read my scriptures. I have sought God and His will and His answers. And it doesn't add up. And so I, I, I see little choice because Mormonism is growing in terms of the tension between me and it. And so I have to eventually, I just, I have to walk away from my own peace. Is that pride? Because, because that feels like the story of those who were both feet in who no longer are. That feels like humility. Is it possible the people on the inside who say, yeah, I don't want to read those gospel topic essays. I don't need to. Yeah, I don't want to know the other information of the church. Church isn't a place for questions. Church isn't a place to, to raise up controversial issues. Church isn't a place to have these kinds of discussions. I am not going to contribute to providing a safe space here for people to have questions. I don't want to read the essays. I don't want to read church history. Just have faith, brother. Like, that feels like pride. And so in this lesson, again, we're painting people as less than, who leave, and people, it's unsaid in a way, but it's people who are better than for staying. The next one is being critical of leaders' imperfections. And they use Simon's writer as the example here. The trouble is, Simon's writer doesn't leave because his name is spelled wrong. Simon's is active in the church for another year. So why does the history of the church paint it this way? Well, it's simple. An institution looks to protect itself. That's just the nature of an institution. An institution likes to make sure that it perpetuates itself. It needs to exist into the future. And so when when a member of an institution leaves... And that member has the weight and is speaking out loud and there's a risk of other members following after him. We need to paint that person as the enemy and we need to paint them in some silly, petty, oversimplified way so that we can say like their reason for leaving was silly. Nobody here needs to pay attention to it. Nobody here needs to take their life or their experience seriously. And that's the motive, whether consciously or unconsciously. So Simon's writer gets the bad rap of having left because his name's spelled wrong, even though he's active in the church for like another year. And that it seems fairly clear from the historical record that he is leaving over other reasons. But by all means, let's bear false witness of Simon's writer. And again, it's not only false, but it becomes borderline dishonesty. And it becomes borderline unethical once we realize that better history has come to light and we're refusing to listen to it, to weigh it, to take it seriously. The last one is being offended. Some church members become offended by the actions of others and allow an offense to fester until they are led into apostasy. 
And so we have the story of Elder Fraser Eaton. This is the story I wasn't familiar with. He's given $700 to the building of the temple, and then the dedication comes, and he doesn't have a seat. The temple is filled. He's arrived afterward, and so he's not allowed inside for the dedication. They have a dedication the second day for those who couldn't find seats, but this didn't satisfy poor old Fraser Eaton, and he apostatized. Now this is, we get this from George Smith, Journal of Discourses, 11.9. Here's the other point, and there's several of them, I should say. Leaving over these reasons, I think, are deeply in the minority. I think people leaving the church over petty, silly reasons is in the minority of those who leave. We as an institution paint these reasons as the biggest reasons people leave. Because again, anybody who leaves our faith, we have to discredit them. We have to paint them as less than. We have to show how silly they were for walking away. Because if we were to give any weight to the reasons that they're giving, if we were to give any substance to the reasons that they're giving, then that would show back up on us and say like, ooh, maybe they have a point. Maybe I do need to better understand this stuff. Maybe there is a problem here. Instead, we say like, nobody is really leaving the church. Church is as strong as ever, right? And we have to tell people that those who do leave, they're just... They just didn't have enough faith, brothers and sisters. They just didn't read the scriptures enough. They didn't pray enough. They must have wanted to sin. They were looking for an excuse to get out. And that's not my experience. My experience is when a dedicated member of the church leaves the church, they left after trying to put it back together, after pleading with God, with the church, and with its leaders to provide some solution to putting this back together. To paint these people as petty, to, to dismiss them, to marginalize them, to shame them, to say they're less than in some way, is inappropriate. It's dishonest, and it's borderline unethical. It, it has to stop. Elder Uchtdorf is right. He says, one might ask, if the gospel is so wonderful, why would anyone leave? Sometimes we assume it is because they have been offended or lazy or sinful, which is what Lesson 24 tries to say. Elder Uchtdorf's right when he says actually it is not that simple. In fact, there is not just one reason that applies to the variety of situations. Some of our dear members struggle for years with the question whether they should separate themselves from the church. I think it's wrong. This lesson is wrong on so many levels. The stories it uses as the examples are false. They are secondhand, too. We always tell the story of those who left. When someone leaves, we, as the in-group, get to decide why they left. We don't ask them to tell us. We don't take their reasons seriously. We don't let them use define the language and terms of why they left. We don't listen to what was going through their heart and mind. Instead, we tell it for them. This has to end. For this church to be healthy, this mechanism has to end. We have to stop telling somebody else's story. And it is so saturated through this lesson. Other reasons. Rationalizing disobedience. 
again, I don't find that to be for the dedicated members of the church who lose their faith in Mormonism and distance themselves from it. I don't find rationalizing disobedience to be the, to be a issue anywhere near the majority of issues, right? It's in the minority. Another one, accepting the false teachings of the world. This one seems crazy, and here's why. Because so many of Mormonism's teachings have been shown to be false. So false, in fact, that later leaders have had to frame things a new way. We don't get our own planets. Cremation's not so bad. Birth control maybe is an evil. And we could list them and list them and list them. Earth, 6,000 years old. Evolution's a heresy. Blacks were cursed. We could go on and on and on. So maybe the problem isn't that they accepted the false teachings in the world. Maybe that's a symptom and that the cause was that they accepted the false teachings of the church, right? That they accepted the church's stance as truth only to see the church then change it or to hold a ground on a position that just seems unethical. That it's against one's conscience to continue beliefs in things in the church that have been shown to be false or that they see deeply hurting another. So accepting the false teachings of the world, again, you are so oversimplifying and making this really small thing into this major reason and you're not framing it in a way that is honest and ethical. The lesson finishes up by saying we can remain valiant in our testimony testimonies and avoid deception. I don't know how we can avoid deception. And here's what I mean. If, if Brigham Young knew by the Holy Ghost, if he knew by the revelation of God that Adam was our father and Elohim is our grandfather, and if the members of the church knew that Brigham Young taught truth, only to have later leaders say Brigham Young taught false doctrine, and that the members believed falsely in Brigham Young's false doctrine and thought it was truth when it wasn't, then I would need an explanation of how we can not be deceived continuously in the church. Like somebody has to explain to me like how Brigham Young got it wrong, but trust me folks, right now we're getting it right. And without that kind of a solid answer, then being deceived is happening in the church and out. That the scale of deception is all around us. How can one not be deceived? I don't know. Like, maybe it's to read various sources and to welcome truth outside of the beliefs you currently hold. But that's not what Mormonism wants you to do. Google is scary. Don't listen to the voices of the world. What are the voices of the world? They're the voices that are saying something different than the voices inside the church. But we already know the voices inside the church get it wrong all the time. That we have no good standard process for saying like, yeah, they got it wrong then, but I know they're getting it right right now. This becomes a mess. And the solution we pose in the manuals is let's just dismiss those who leave. Let's just marginalize them. Let's shame them. Let's make them less than in some way. And I'm saying right now, as we look at this manual, it is demonstrably false, this lesson. It is demonstrably oversimplified. It is demonstrably inaccurate. And so now that we know that, once you know, it becomes unethical to perpetuate it. There's an idea at the end that the things of God should always edify us. And I had a conversation with a leader yesterday, 
And this leader used this kind of reasoning. said, look, when we're doing the things of God, when we're doing the things of God, we will feel peace, right? Contention is of the devil. We will feel peace. And I know that's a teaching within our faith, but I had to stop him. I said, well, wait a minute. Let me share with you a different perspective. Some of the greatest people in the history of this world, Jesus included, participated in experiences where they jumped into, where they put themselves into the tension of what the world thought was okay or what their religion thought was okay, and they pushed back against it. And their life was full of anxiety. They struggled to see God in the experience, but their gut told them that it was right and that it was worth it to live in this anxiety and tension and push back against the status quo. So if you're going to hold over my head, brother, that if there's anxiety and tension and you're not being edified and, and you're, and you're, and there's contention in that moment. And so that's of the devil. And hence, hence we should just let things sit and just let things be. Then you're dismissing people like mother Teresa, Martin Luther, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King and others like every great figure through history, including people like Abinadi stood up in the moment of unrighteous dominion, stood up in the moment of a culture saying, we're okay with this, and but then that person saying, I'm not, in dealing with the repercussions of that anxiety and that tension. So please don't give me that if we're causing contention, if we're not feeling feelings of peace, that something's wrong with us. Because there's plenty of experiences out there that testify to the exact opposite, and there are experiences that you validate as well. Brothers and sisters, Lesson 24 is a total box of inaccuracies, falsities, oversimplification, overreaching, and inaccuracies. There's no other way around it. And so until we can get to a day where we start telling our story accurately and stop telling others' stories inaccurately, then this church will continue to hold a deep, deep unhealthiness within it. It's my prayer that we can be vulnerable. I keep saying this over and over. It's my prayer that we can be honest with ourselves and say, look, this is not okay. We are going to stop telling Thomas Thomas Marsh's story. We're going to stop telling Simon Ryder's story. We're going to just knock it off. It speaks more to the discomfort we have with those that leave than with any truth about why they left. We can be better. We can do better. We can honor their story in leaving just as we honor the person who left Catholicism and comes into our faith. People's journeys are personal, and we need to honor the fact that someone may be led by God, just as much led by God, as they step out of this church into the next stage of their life, as those who stepped out of some other stage and walked into this one. It's my prayer that we as members of the church can have humility, that we as members of the church can avoid pride, that we as members of the church can avoid being deceived, that we as members of the church might learn by study and by faith, that we might understand the scriptures and the history and the doctrines of the church. And that we should recognize that sometimes when people are doing the things of God, that there's going to be contention and tension and anxiety. 
And that may be the very place God needs them to be to make things better. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. Say what they will now you say